By college, Michelle Akers had become an all-American soccer star. She earned ESPN's Woman Athlete of the Year in 1985, and that was the same year that the U.S. formed its first women's national team with Michelle Akers, a starter. 1991, the U.S. team won the first ever Women's World Cup, and Michelle scored 10 goals in five games, including the championship's winner. She became the first woman soccer player to have a paid sponsor. She played professionally in Sweden. Michelle had drive and tenacity, and they were paying off. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Just as Michelle Aker's star was rising, her health was declining. By 1993, the woman who used grit and determination to make life happen found her life unmanageable. She suffered from chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome. She said, when it was really bad, I couldn't sit up in a chair. The racking migraines stranded me at home, unable even to get up to brush my teeth or eat. For the first time in her life, Michelle could no longer count on her old friend's strength and hard work. When her marriage of four years broke up in 94, Michelle had reached the end of herself. She said, I was so sick I couldn't take a five-minute walk without needing two days on the couch to recover. I was forced to spend a lot of time thinking about who I was. I didn't like what I saw. Michelle had put her trust in Jesus Christ as a high school student, but ignored God in college and after graduation. Now sick and alone, Michelle reluctantly accepted an invitation from a strength coach to attend his church. And although she couldn't articulate it at the time, in retrospect, Michelle says she knew she needed to get things right with God. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their own life? Michelle explains further, looking back, I think God was gently, patiently tapping me on the shoulder and calling my name for years. But I continuously brushed him off saying, hey, I know what I'm doing. I can make these decisions. Leave me alone. Then, she continues, I think God finally said, Okay. Crossed his arms and looked at me sadly because he knew I was going to make a lot of mistakes by ignoring him. He knew I would be hurting in the future. And she concludes by saying, It took total devastation before I would acquiesce and say, Okay, God. Okay. 
You can have my life. Please help me. Could Peter have felt a similar sense of devastation when Jesus called him Satan? After all, Peter, at least as I read it, Peter was trying to help. He was trying to help Jesus. He felt like he had just hit one out of the park when Jesus asked who the disciples thought he was. And he answered, you are the Messiah. Everything had clicked. You are the Messiah, the anointed one that God has brought to save us. Right after that, Jesus begins to teach Peter and the other disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering. Suffering? Rejection? The Messiah? A rebuke combines confrontation with condemnation, and rebuking is what Jesus did to the demons in Mark's Gospel. Now Peter tries it on Jesus. Jesus flips things around and rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine Peter, red-faced, shutting his mouth, maybe crawling off to the side? One commentary pointed out, and I felt like this was interesting, that Jesus didn't say, get lost, Satan. Or get lost, Peter. He said, get behind me. In other words, take the place where you should be. Do you remember by the sea when Jesus first called out Simon, Peter, and Andrew? What did he say? Follow me. Follow me. Where does that put Peter? Yeah, behind him. Back behind. Get behind me. Be my disciple. I'll give you what you need, and I'll take you where you need to go. Follow me. And then this challenging statement that Jesus makes, he calls the crowd to him along with the disciples, and again he says, if anyone would come after me, he would deny himself. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to lose, save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world? The whole world beauty and riches and friends what good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit give up his own life for all of that what can a man give in exchange for his soul if you've been to Mexico or almost any developing country you may have encountered the market. The marketplace where the local vendors try to hoodwink gullible tourists for as much money as possible. Any, yay, some of you are smiling. You've had this experience. When I arrived in West Africa 
many years ago, the experienced missionaries told me that I could probably get for half price, for half of the first price, whatever the vendor offered. So over the two years that I was there, I would exchange money for crafts or dresses or jewelry. And if I could bargain that vendor down to half his first price or her first price, I felt like I got a bargain. I felt like it was then a fair exchange. What is a fair exchange for one's soul? One person overheard a man's comment to his friend. I told the guy at the auto parts store that I wanted a windshield wiper for your Yugo. He said, that sounds like a fair exchange. <laughs> What's a fair exchange for one's soul? In his book, Reaching the Invisible God, Philip Yancey writes about his wife's experience going into a nursing home for what they called Christian Circle. There was one woman who would come every week or every month, a woman named Betsy. And each time, Betsy would introduce herself and Janet would introduce herself and they would... But Betsy never realized that she had met Janet all those other months before. After a few weeks of this, Janet learned that Betsy could still read. Even with her Alzheimer's, she could still read. And so she would give Betsy a hymn to read. And Betsy had no comprehension of what she was reading. And sometimes she would repeat the same line over and over like a stuck record until somebody prompted her to move on. But on a good day, she could read the, the whole verse, the whole hymn through with a good, strong voice. So each week, Janet would call on Betsy to read a hymn. One Friday, the senior citizens who preferred older hymns that they remembered from childhood selected the old rugged cross. Tim, didn't know you were going to sing that. So Betsy had in front of her the old rugged cross. On a hill far away stands an old rugged cross, she began reading, the emblem of suffering and shame. And when Betsy read that, she became agitated. I can't go on, she said. It's too sad, too sad, she said. And some of the other seniors who were there were shocked because never since they had known Betsy had she been able to put together a thought and speak it. Now, obviously, she did understand. Janet said, that's okay, Betsy. You don't have to keep reading if you don't want to. But after a pause, she started again. And she stopped at the same place, the emblem of suffering and shame. And a tear made a trail down each cheek. I can't go on. It's so sad, she said, unaware that she had said the same thing two minutes ago. She tried again and again reacted with a sudden shock of recognition, grief, and the exact same words. It's too sad. Finally, when Betsy seemed tranquil, Janet led her to the elevator to return her to her room. And to Janet's amazement, Betsy began singing the hymn from memory. The words came in breathy, chopped 
phrases, and she could barely carry the tune, but anyone could have recognized the hymn. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. She was seeing this, and new tears fell, but Betsy kept going this time, still from memory, gaining strength as she sang. And I love that old cross, where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies, the things of this world, till my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Betsy's tattered mind had tapped into a network of old connections to resurrect a pattern of meaning. Even in her confusion, two things stood out. Suffering and shame. And those two words summarize the human condition, Nancy says. The condition that Betsy lives in every day of her life. Who knows more suffering and shame than Betsy? For her, that hymn answered the question. Jesus does. Like Michelle Akers, we may try to bargain with God and with nature and do our best to avoid suffering and even shame. But all of us have areas of brokenness. We know what our own areas are sometimes. We don't know what most others' areas are. But sometimes it helps to know that they have them. And it helps us to know that we can walk each other through the difficult times. Through the suffering and even shame. And we are installing deacons today. And our deacons are not called out to fix our brokenness. So deacons, if you were going to try to, stop. We're not asking you to fix our brokenness. We are asking you to walk with us through it. Each deacon is connected to a church member. And deacons are being connected to visitors. And their desire is to be servants. That's the original meaning of that term, deacon, servant. Now, our deacons have various gifts. Not all of them have the same ones. Some wish they had different ones and don't recognize the good ones they have. Some might be better at hospital visits and others are better at mailing a card letting you know they're thinking of you. Some deacons are probably really good at phone calls and then others are really good at saying at praying for their people every day. I think that that's the most important ministry of our deacons is prayer. While they're agreeing to serve God by serving you and you are invited to let them know of your needs, 
the deacons will be praying for you, helping to carry you through your brokenness. Deacons, pray for us, we ask. Pray that we will, like Peter, get behind Jesus. Pray that we will follow him as his disciples, even if it means exchanging all these temporary things to which we cling for true, real life, for our souls, even when that means carrying our own cross. Walk with us, we ask you, and let us, as ministers of Christ, in this congregation, perhaps recommit to walking with each other down our roads of suffering and shame and joy. Let's pray together. Holy and giving God, your strength carries us through more than we realize. Walk with us, we pray, as we walk with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.